the harshest of operating conditions. Large-scale investment, planning, and commitment places the offshore sector in a league all on its own, where the stories of people aren't found anywhere else. From safety to operations to new technology, we look to break down this often mystified industry and shed light into the unknown. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast with your host, Andy Lash. All right, everybody, welcome to the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast. Thank you for listening in. Today, we are joined by Jose Solis from Churchill Drilling Tools USA. And we are going to be talking about the drilling tools and all the different things that Churchill offers. We'll talk to Jose about his experience in the industry and uh, just get to know him a bit. The show is brought to you by Tidewater. Tidewater owns and operates the largest fleet of offshore support vessels in the industry. With over 60 years of experience supporting offshore energy exploration, and production activities worldwide. If you're interested in support for your maritime operations, you can learn more about Tidewater through their website at www.tdw.com. Jose, thank you for joining me. Thank you for your time. I, I really appreciate it. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Andy. I really appreciate being on. Where are you at today? Because we're doing this remotely. Yeah, no, I am in the oil and gas capital of the world, Houston, Texas today. Today. Is that where you normally are? Is that where you live? Yeah, so I'm I'm based out of Houston. So we're we have a, a hub here. We also have a hub in Aberdeen and another one in Dubai. But I spend the majority of my time covering everything from Alaska down to Argentina. So my my role takes me to many different places. So I usually travel quite a bit. Later this month, I'll be down in Trinidad and then going out out to Colombia and then probably a few other places before the end of the year just depending on how the travel schedule goes. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I typically travel quite a bit. was in Canada last month, and then before that was in Mexico. So yeah, I'm, I'm typically all over the place. But this week, or rather this majority of this month, I'll be in Houston. That's great. My work travel only takes me to Midland, Odessa, and Houston, and Oklahoma. I don't, I don't get to go international. You must be collecting those passport stamps like crazy from what it sounds like. Yeah, I actually just renewed my passport not that long ago and, and just kind of looking through it, it was it was pretty amazing to see how many places I've been just during my time in the industry. You know, I've been to Europe twice, South America multiple times, Canada many, many times. So it's it's really unique, all the, the unique places that you get to go once you're sort of embedded in the industry. But I have spent my fair share amount of time in the US shell play regions, you know, in Denver and Midland. Oklahoma, you know, Louisiana for sure, North Louisiana, if you're talking shell play. But yeah, I've, I've definitely been been around a few different places in the oil patch, if you will. And you said Churchill Drilling Tools has an office out of Aberdeen, right? Yeah, that's our main headquarters in, in Aberdeen. That's right. That's where the company was started. That's really cool. It's just quite coincident. So earlier this morning, I did another interview and I interviewed Captain Lance Grindley from Tidewater and he was in Aberdeen when we did the interview. So just pretty cool coincidence that talked to him there and now you and the and that both companies having a connection there. Yeah, I went to Aberdeen last year for the first time and they call it the Granite City. It's, it's pretty unique because all the buildings are, are made out of granite. It's gray. But it was a really unique experience. It was about this time last year that I was there, and it was pretty cool. It was, you know, I think Aberdeen's got a pretty big oil and gas culture, if you will. I mean, they, they operate a lot of the, or they, they rather, they're included in a lot of the operations in the North Sea and, and things of that nature. Our team out there, they support, you know, majority of the European operations, Africa and whatnot. And then our, our, our team in the Middle East covers pretty much everything in the Middle East as well as Asia. So we stay pretty pretty busy out of each hub, if you will. Yeah, no, that's that's really cool. That's a lot of fun. I like traveling internationally and getting to see the world. So that makes for an exciting career, I'm sure. Talking about that, why don't we just hear a little bit about yourself, where you started and, and kind of how you got to this point in your career and just your personal background a little bit. Yeah, no. So I started in the industry in 2008. I started offshore with oceaneering working offshore doing mainly, you know, topside inspections, working with deep water divers, monitoring and, and, and data recording on underwater, underwater inspections for fixed platforms in the Gulf of Mexico, you know, basically just 
kind of cut my teeth there and, and, and then got into a little bit of rope access work and then doing non-destructive testing on rope access while doing rope access. So taking, you know, ultrasonic thickness readings on, you know, processing pipe on, on fixed platforms in the Gulf of Mexico. So I did that for, for some time and then ended up getting an opportunity through a connection of mine to go work for a company that was mainly onshore work for a company called THL Associates doing third-party quality assurance for the inspection during the inspection assembly and testing downhole drilling tools. And that's when it that's when I really got into the downhole drilling side of things and learning a lot more about drilling and, and completions and then manufacturing and you know drill pipe manufacturing, casing manufacturing, threading, failure analysis. We had a team of engineers that would do you know actual failure analysis. They would do landing string analysis, BHA analysis kind of worked my way through the ranks with that company, did a little bit of technical recruiting for them, and then got into got into sales in about 2012 with that company and was with them till about 2016. So got a lot of opportunity to really learn that business. It was it was independently owned when I first started in 2010 and was sold to a, a large company in 20, 2012 and stayed with them during the transition. And then in 2016, just transitioned over to another company, which was much more of a startup on on land side, on the production side. So I got a lot of exposure to artificial lift, so electronic submersible pumps, rod lift, PCPs, things of that nature. And it was a smaller company, and and it was a it was backed by a private equity group, and ended up being sold within a year from from my start date. And so decided after the acquisition to take some time off and take care of some personal things. I had uh, had a family member that was pretty ill and wanted to spend some time with them and just kind of take some time off. I'd been traveling, like we just mentioned before, quite a bit. And so I sort of missed a lot of a lot of time with my, I have two kids, missed a lot of time with my kids and my wife. And so sort of just wanted to play catch up. It was kind of part of my 10-year plan to, to take a break, sort of at the end of the first quarter of my career, if you will. I'd pretty much f- finished up the first 10 years of my career. So decided to take some time off and then ended up, while I was taking time off, got contacted by two previous colleagues and this, they were they were looking for somebody to, to come on board the team and they thought I would be a good fit. So they recommended me and ended up coming on board with you know, Churchill Drilling Tools in July of last year and was quickly promoted into the position of VP of Sales by November of the same year. And have been, you know, really helping, you know, build the team and, and build the processes of of our sales force here and, and sort of lead the charge, if you will, into developing our, our sales strategy and and you know meeting meeting our, our requirements and our goals, if you will. But just bringing some new elements to the equation, bringing some new processes and some new some new systems, if you will, to the sales sales team here. So I've been doing that since last year. I've actually recruited two previous, previous, previous colleagues from another company that I work for. So there's five <laughs> of us total that have all worked together previously at another company. So there's a lot of history there, a lot of camaraderie, a lot of brotherhood, if you will. If, I mean, we we really, you know, we've we've put a lot of stock into the development of each person there. You know, not just in in the day to day, but even personally, you know, we, we spend a lot of time together on and off the field, if you will, like teammates. So it's been really interesting. I mean, the it, I'm sure you'll agree that the oil, and, oil industry is a, a really small world. You run into a lot of people again later in your career. So, you know, they always tell you, you know, be nice to everybody because you never know who you can end up working for. So it's, you know, it all rings true. You know, I always try and make sure that I don't burn bridges or anything like that. But, you know, it's, it's still a business. It can it can still be pretty. How do I want to say this? It can be challenging at times, especially when it's a downturn. You know, people have to make really really hard decisions, and you really feel for them because nobody wants to make those tough decisions. But that's just the business that we've signed up for. And so, you know, if you can if you can come to terms with it, then you you can really understand that it's not always going to be a it's not always going to be a feast, but it won't always be a famine either. So you know, take care of yourself while you can. Yeah. No, that's. The whole production side of things is is very new to me. My nine years now in the oil and gas sector has, has been focused on transportation and logistics. And once everybody produces that oil, 
I'll take over from there, right? I got that part good. Put it on a truck, put it on a rail car, take it to a pipeline. That's good. But no matter what part of the business you're in, the industry, and in, you're absolutely correct, you're going to run into the same people. You're going to run, you, you know, you're going to see these people again, whether you want to or not. It is a, you know, multi trillion dollar industry that everybody knows everybody, you know? Yeah. I used to be in the military and we used to say the same thing that it's a small army, you know, you just, uh, you know, <laughs> be good to everybody because you just never know who you're going to end up running into again, right? Absolutely. One thing I, I had a question on the rope access. That, yeah. I think that's pretty self-explanatory, but is it simply that's exterior of, of the vessels and of the ship's by rope that is it just that simple yeah so i mean it's really unique so most of the time that we would do rope access inspections we would go on to let's say a fixed leg platform or even even a floating platform for that matter during you know just would really depend on the operation but and it could even be a vessel right so i mean we were on a on a construction barge once you know doing rope access work on a on a jla tower basically just zip tying cords down the side of a jla tower you know <laughs> 150 feet or something like that. It was really high up there. I have this, I have this really unique photo of, of me in, and you can see a vessel way in the background and it looks really small, but you can tell it's a pretty large vessel, but because of how high we are. But, you know, it was, it was one of those things that it, it sort of captured my curiosity because I was, I was like, wow, that looks like it's a lot of fun and it's and it's exciting and it's a little dangerous so it's even more exciting. You know, I I was a bit of an adrenaline junkie as a kid and so I was always into doing things that were not always safe. So, you know, I mean not that we were ever unsafe. I mean, you have a safety safety line and and you have, you know, all your safety equipment, but you know as well as I do that, you know, if you take a fall, you're probably going to be hurt pretty good. So you have to be extra cautious, right? But it is a lot harder than I think most people think it is. A lot more technical, not just learning how to tie knots, but you know, just being mindful of what can go wrong and how to, you know, how to actually, if somebody gets hurt, how do you go down there and get them, retrieve them, and then you know, bring them back up or bring them, take them down without hurting yourself in the process. And so, you know, you always have somebody on on staff. You know, they have different levels. So you always have, you know, higher levels monitoring the lower levels to make sure that they're doing everything safe and, and right. So it's a really important part of the job that, you know, you're always doing, you know, your JSAs and kind of identifying, hey, let's be aware of this or this could happen. And then letting people on the platforms know that where you're going to be working and, and getting any permits you might need to get and then letting them know so that they don't, you know, do anything unsafe or anything like that while you're operating on their on their on their work structure. Yeah. I think with just like anything that we do in the oil and gas industry, it is a calculated, hopefully well-controlled risk for every single thing that we do. So it's yeah. something the industry as a whole knows very well. And it's pretty neat. Cause I think you're going to see sort of like what ROVs did with dive crews. I think you'll see drones do a lot of the same with rope access where they're where they're they're not always going to be able to replace exactly what the rope access technician can do, but they're going to inherently make some of the jobs safer or, or you know take a, take away some of that risk by utilizing a drone because obviously I think we'd much rather lose a drone than lose a human life or put a human life at risk. So you know some of those technologies are really starting to come together and, and really augment those parts of the service sector of our industry, which is really neat to see. I, I've seen some people that I know from Oceaneering go on and become part of drone crews and and actually, you know, do those types of inspections as well. So, you know, they've just been learning how to, I guess, not necessarily amend, but I guess supplement their their skill sets so that they can continue to, to be employed gainfully, right? Yeah, I don't think it, as technology evolves, I mean, and this is a rabbit trail that we could we could go deep down. But I, I think kind of like you're you've said, you know, it's it's gonna be an adaptation of skills for the users in that industry. It's gonna be it's not gonna be necessarily a loss of jobs. It's gonna be a transition of jobs. It's gonna be a focus on new skill sets, higher level skill sets, and hopefully those you know, reap a better return for that employee. And, and they're doing something that's safer. You know, it's it's a little more skill focused and 
they're not just hanging from a rope, you know, hundreds of feet in the air and, and, and risking their life to do that inspection. They've got, they've got a, a tool and, and those tools are doing things that a human couldn't do, right? Like we Absolutely. see, yeah. you know, different light spectrum cameras and, and, you know, I don't know that much about it. I, I, I dabble with it a little bit, but you know, there's a lot of new things that we're doing that we couldn't even do before, whether it's rope access or, or anything like that. Yeah. And I think just like, like I'd said earlier, you know, ROVs, you know, they did the same thing with, with underwater divers, right? Cause underwater diving is something that I think everybody knows is a pretty dangerous profession. I mean, I've met a lot of underwater divers who are missing digits, <laughs> you know, missing fingers, you know, everybody knows somebody that's, you know, taken a CO2 hit and has got the bends or, you know, a manta ray came by and pulled up their cord. And I mean, I've seen documentaries where underwater construction divers have, you know, been near death. And I mean, it's just, if we can remove those elements of danger at all possible and, and, and introduce new technology to, to make things ultimately safer, I think we should do that. But us as a, as a workforce should also recognize that, Hey, you know, maybe, maybe I should learn a little bit of something about this technology and supplement my skill set so that I can continue to be valuable in any capacity, whether it be as a as a rope access technician or a drone technician or a diver or ROV operator, you know, sort of being a double threat, if you will. I can do both. I can be digital and analog, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Maybe you're referencing it. Did you watch that movie on Netflix called Last Breath? Is that the one yeah, you're talking yeah, that about? Was, that one was, I mean, that was pretty intense. That's an intense movie. Yeah. Yeah, because you know I've I've seen I've been on some some dive vessels before, and I mean you know you see these guys go into these chambers and or, or go into their dive suits or go down the bell and things like that, and you're always a little worried. You're always thinking, man, you know I hope I hope he's okay. I hope he's safe. And you know when you're when you're looking at how much working bottom time an actual diver has, you know when you're when they go down to let's say 300 feet, it's not that long. And so these saturation divers, you know they they saturate their, you know, their bloodstream with, with gas so that they can stay down so much longer, which apparently, I mean, that's, that's just extreme, right? I mean, that's, that's like at the highest level of underwater diving, if you will. I mean, you have to be very, very mindful of everything that you're doing. So, I mean, I, I can only imagine, you know, that the stakes are so high. I mean, if, if we can remove some of that danger and introduce some, some more safety by utilizing technology or a machine, you know, I'd much rather put that at risk than a human life. Totally agree. Totally agree. And a big shout out to Netflix, because this is now the second podcast episode where we've talked about Last Breath. (laughs) (laughs) I actually did an interview about a week ago with Sarah Whiteford from One Step Power, and they work on dynamic positioning testing and dynamic positioning testing system testing. And she mentioned the same thing and was just like, you should go check it out. You know, I was like, okay, I'll check it out. And I watched it this week and I was like, man, this is heavy. Like I, I had anxiety and yeah, my palms are sweating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anybody listening, it's a very good movie. It is not lighthearted. We're not going to ruin the movie for you. It is a real event. I think all in all, it's, it's a really good movie, but not lighthearted, very heavy, very anxiety inducing so it doesn't start it doesn't start mark Wahlberg. (laughs) (laughs) no 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 that it does not it does not so but very interesting i was a portion of the industry that i knew absolutely nothing about that people were on this planet doing crazy stuff like that so yeah yeah so i've been very fortunate to to just get exposure to many different parts of the industry in a short amount of time i've like I said, I, I've joined the industry in 08 and, you know, I've just been really, really fortunate to pretty much just be at the right place at the right time pretty often. I mean, unfortunately, when I had just started with the second company, TH Hill, that I, that I worked for in 2010, Macondo had just happened and, you know, they had done a moratorium on the Gulf of Mexico. And so that was a, a large chunk of the company's business overnight turned off. So, you know, at that time, you know, the industry took this huge pivot and we saw this huge explosion on land and you saw companies like Chesapeake just, you know, start breaking out and, and you know, getting, I think Chesapeake at one time had something crazy like 60 or 70 rigs on land in different parts of the U.S. And, you know, we were we were doing a large amount of, of third party work for them specifically for their for their mud motors because they were having all these challenges with mud motors. And this was 
at a time when, you know, if people were drilling on land wells, I mean, they weren't drilling them nearly as fast as they're drilling them today. So they were always trying to make sure that, you know, when they put mud motor, a mud motor down the hole, that it had the highest possible chance of success. So they invested heavily in, in companies like, you know, TH Hill to support their operations. So they definitely believed in it. And they were, they really helped us, you know, really keep our, our business going and not only going, but, you know, help the business really thrive during a time where other service companies were really starting to, to hurt big time. I mean, we were able to retain a pretty decent amount of size of people. I mean, we had, you know, very little layoffs. And then even after that, we were able to try and bring people back on board that had gotten laid off previously. And the management had done a really good job of just trying to get people back to work as quick as they could. I mean, there's just some things that are out of your control and nobody can control, you know, an incident like that. And, you know, the company did a really good job of really trying to build up their their workforce, especially during a time of a downturn. And then obviously the downturn of 14 was really tough for everybody, 14, 15, 16. But those are all things that, you know, coming into the industry during, you know, 08, 09, I've always just seen this roller coaster effect. So it's always been, it's it's never been, you know, where I've ever felt like, oh man, you know, the storm is over. I guess, you know, having prior military service, I've just learned being comfortable, being uncomfortable, if you will. Yeah. If you stay ready, you don't have to get ready, right? You can kind of just be prepared for what's <laughs> yeah. to come, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm always on my toes. I'm always thinking, okay, what's coming around the corner? Because anything could happen. Well, and that's something that, you know, I... I, I deal with drivers every day. And that's something that we try to tell a lot of these drivers because it's the same thing. Every part of the oil and gas industry, it kind of comes back to a boom bust cycle where, you know, you do, you're going to see change. You're going to see peaks and valleys. And quite often, some of the big dollars that you see flying around during the peak it's intended to fill those valleys sometimes, you know, like you can't just go go to town, buy a Ford F-150 Raptor, and then put another lift on it and then go run like crazy, right? Like you have to budget, you have to live, <laughs> you know, with a long-term goal in mind. And then this industry works really well. You know, that there are a lot of stories like you just referenced where a lot of these companies do, you know, keep people aboard and they move them around and they keep people employed, which unfortunately that never gets the news attention. It's, it's the layoffs. It's, it's the big cuts that do, but there's always a lot of good stuff still going on, you know, in this industry. Yeah. It's been, it's been definitely interesting to sort of watch these things unfold and then see, you know, as they say, history doesn't always rhyme, but or excuse me, it doesn't always repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things that if you if you're just paying attention and and you sort of understand that at a very basic level, then then you really start to tell yourself, okay, you know, maybe I shouldn't go buy a brand new house right now or go buy a brand new car or you know, go buy a Rolex or anything like that, right? Like just, you know, keep it modest, be easy, save your money, you know, think about a rainy day. And then also, you know, I've been really fortunate to learn from people that have been in the industry for a long time and, and sort of listen to their wisdom and say, okay, you know, how has this person been able to, you know, set themselves up for long-term success and not, you know, go through some of the heartache that you see other people go through. And I mean, they'll be frank and they'll tell you, you know, like don't go out and buy everything that's brand new and shiny. And I think I learned a lot of those lessons too, being in the army, you know, they would always tell these, you know, brand new privates like, okay, private Joe, don't, you know, don't go outside the base and spend your your enlistment bonus on a brand new motorcycle for you know a thirty percent interest rate. <laughs> you know, like, and it was true because you would you would just drive you know ten minutes outside the base and you would see all these different car dealerships that were just I mean they, these guys were in the water to 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 take your money, and it was like shark chum for these new privates that would come out of you know basic training or whatever and. They just knew like, yeah, these, these privates got a, a pocket full of money that's just burning a hole through their through their pocket. So, you know, you just kind of have to be mindful about it. And fortunately, before I came into the industry, I spent some time in the financial industry and I, I became very financially literate. And I just learned why and how people of wealth not only became wealthy, but also how they retained and grew their wealth. And so that was something that was always very interesting to me. And I, I would always tell myself, okay, you know, when I'm when I'm at this point, these are the things that I'm going to do, and I really 
sort of roadmap what I wanted that to look like and put a lot of critical thought into it before I even got there. And so, you know, it was it was just one of those things that when I finally hit some milestones, I knew exactly what to do versus not having a plan whatsoever and sort of just kind of being left alone to my own my own devices. Yeah, no. Well, it sounds like you've done really well. You've you've made a lot of accomplishments and achievements in your life so far. So congrats to doing what you set out for, at least at least this far in your life. I mean, you have to have a plan. You know, if there's anything that I've learned is that, you know, failure to plan, plan is planning to fail, right? And so the way I've I've looked at my career, I figured, look, you're gonna have at least 40 years of work. And if you break that down into quarters, that's 10 years of each. And so if you, you figured you start when you're 25, right? You know, that's, you know, if you're out of the military, out of college, whatever it might be, that's right around the time that you're going to get, you know, probably your first serious job, if you will. And, you know, if you break it down into 10 years, every 10 years, my, my goal has always been every 10 years is to, you know, sort of take a look back. Am I where I want to be? Should I take some time off? I didn't, I didn't really want to wait till I'm 65 to enjoy, you know, time with my family and time away from actual work and sort of doing some of the things that I want to do. I've sort of taken a different approach and just said, you know, every 10 years, I'm going to, I'm going to take a look back. And and if it's the right time, then I'm going to take a year off if I can. And I'm going to try and, you know, spend time actually enjoying, you know, being with my family and, and enjoying my life and, and, and really, taking time to to reflect and then when I go when I come back for the next quarter I'm refreshed I'm ready if you look at any you know high level athlete you know they don't play 24/7 they don't play year round they might practice you know they might they're going to they're going to work out they're going to do all these things but when they're in the actual game game you know they're they're playing a season and so I look at every every year is like this is my season right and what what am I going to do this season and then when I, when it's the off season because the industry goes in cycles. You'll see, you know, it kind of slows down during certain parts of the year, speeds back up, certain parts of the year, booms, you know, so I've learned to notice those patterns and, and pattern recognition and, and tell myself, okay, during during the high times, during the, the selling season, if you will, these are the things I'm going to do so I can win and perform at a high level. And then during the off season, these are the things I'm going to do to train and get better so that this way I have, you know, the right amount of focus and intensity during the right time of the year, because if you're just always focused on going 110% every single you know, part of the year, I think you'll end up burning yourself out. And people get burned out in our industry. And unfortunately, they leave the industry. They don't come back. And, you know, we had this huge, you know, what they call the great crew change when people left. And, you know, we lost a lot of experience. And, you know, I'm hopefully, I hope not to be one of those people that ever leaves the industry and never comes back. Because I feel like, you know, I've gained so much experience and, you know, so much knowledge here that, I would hate for the for the industry to lose that, you know, and that's just for my short amount of time. I think we lose that a lot when people decide, you know what, I've had enough of this, you know, I'm burned out, I can't do it anymore. I'm working, you know, 24-7, I'm on call all the time, you know, I'm, I'm just sick and tired of it. And it's because they don't really take time to, to look back and say, okay, how can I better position myself to, you know, to make sure I get my sleep? Make sure I have time to walk away from my computer or my cell phone and, and just reconnect with nature, if you will, or my family and sort of appreciate some of the smaller things that come in life. Because if you don't appreciate any of that stuff, it's going to be really, really hard to to weather the tough times and really put your nose down when you have to. Yeah, I know. Those are some awesome points. I would ask, have you been talking to my wife lately? Because it sounds like... <laughs> <laughs> No, no, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm one of those guys. I feel like I've already lived two, two or three lives before the military, or excuse me, before the industry, and you know, just having a lot of really unique life experiences teaches you that. I mean, if if you don't pay attention, you know, it's it's going to pass you up really fast. And I'll tell you, like, I had a I had a family member who passed away at a very young age, and I had multiple family members pass away at very young ages, and it's always just kind of taught me like you may only have this many more years, so you might want to reconsider this or you might want to reconsider that because if you only had, if I only had four more years left to live, what would I choose to do, right? And so every day, is this what I really want to do? And I have to ask myself that. Is this what I want to do today? And if it's and if it's not what I want to do, it's not what I'm going to do. If I ever change, if something changes in my heart, then then I'll make that change. But you know, it has to be what I want to do. And you have to, you have to live it that way. Yeah, that 
very inspiring advice. I, I appreciate the, your insights there. So, no, that that is uh, certainly something I know I can get better at. I certainly know many, many other people in the industry, like you've mentioned, that can also do much better at at those things and find that balance, find that that off switch and, and actually use it sometimes. I know my wife was was not necessarily entirely thrilled that I got a second job as a podcast host in addition <laughs> to my full-time job. But she knows that this is something that's that's fulfilling. It's it's a creative outlet. It's something that that does trickle back into the normal day-to-day job where it might not be downtime, but it is something that re-energizes me or or something that helps get through the day and all the grind, if you will. Yeah, I think one of the things that I've noticed that our industry has started to do a lot better is, or a lot more of actually is, I think that they've always done it to some extent for sure, but I see it more and more as this, you know, social responsibility stuff, right? And, you know, I think that's one of the things that I I think is going to attract and, and keep people, especially the younger talent, happier in, in, in what they're doing, because, you know, even in with, with Churchill, you know, we're always trying to give back to our community somehow, whether it be, you know, sponsoring teams and things of that nature, or, you know, giving to organizations or, or something like that. But, you know, you, you see, you know, companies like, for example, I believe it's Murphy, they just did a, a, a clay shoot for, I want to say the United Way, maybe. It I think was, you're uh, right. I think, yeah. yeah. And I see it other ones. I think Noble does one for United Way too. And so you see, you know, you see some of the operators really doing these things. I mean, they do, a lot of them do it, but you see the service companies get involved. And I think that really brings a lot of perspective to our industry. You, you know, during the floods, like here in Houston, you see a lot of them, you know, really start to pour, pour resources back in the community to try and give back. And I think that's something that, that I see as a big positive for our industry you know, for the younger generation, especially who I think are actually a lot more mindful now than maybe one or two generations before them. I think, you know, we're just learning how to make the industry much more human. You know, we were all really, really, I guess, back in the day, if you want to call it that, I mean, not even, you know, I guess 10 years ago, that's not even back in the day right now. But if you really want to look at it that way, I mean, you know, the industry was much different. And, you know, people were just hard charging. You know, you talk to any any industry veteran who's been around for 20 or 30 years. I mean, they're just, you know, they're pretty hardcore. <laughs> and I, I equate them to what I would say, you know, I ran into some, you know, you know, Vietnam veterans when I was in the military. And these guys, I mean, they were the most hardcore dudes you would ever see, right? And or Desert Storm veterans. And these guys were pretty hardcore. And you know, guys that fought in like Mogadishu and, and Somalia and who fought in, you know, Panama and things of that nature. I mean, those guys were just, they were just different. You know, they were, they were just nonstop and, you know, they'd eat you for breakfast. Yeah, no, that's, that's a whole section of the, the world of, that I, I haven't gotten to see. I, I do not have that military experience or anything. I have a great appreciation for it. So thank you for your service. Thank you for everybody that might be listening and your service there. So Yeah. I mean, if you talk to anybody who's been in the industry back in the eighties, I mean, it's definitely, you know, they definitely have a different perspective <laughs> than we do. Right. You know, they, they really had to make it work. Those guys, I mean, and girls and, and, and folks and fellas, I mean, they, they really, they were just a whole nother generation of oil field workers. So I feel like we're pretty fortunate these days. I agree. I agree. With your current position at Churchill, how how do you directly day in, day out kind of interact with the oil and gas sector? So majority of our day in and day out is directly with the operators. So we're directly communicating with the operators. We're learning about what operations, drilling operations, completion operations, you know, completions, drilling even geothermal operations in some in some parts of the world. So, you know, we're figuring out, you know, what challenges that they're going to be up against, especially when it comes to the idea of circulation, right? So circulation in your well is is like the lifeblood of your well. If you stop circulating, you know, you're going to be in a lot of problems. You can, you know, start overheating your bit. You can start overheating your bottom hole assembly. Tools can start to malfunction, things of that nature. So, you know, we're, we're really specialized in that part of the industry, where we have tools that can help increase annular velocity. We have tools that can help you, you know, spot 
lost control material. If you run into a, a, a lost zone while you're drilling, let's say you're drilling an exploration well, and you start taking losses where you know your fluids or returns are not coming back at the same rate in which you're pumping them. So we have dart-activated technology that basically you, you drop a dart from surface, you pump it into place, it opens up a valve down hole, and you can start you know, increasing circulation to, you know, maybe well clean or spot that LCM, depending on what you want to do. And there's different types of darts depending on the operation. So we have darts that will lock open the valve. We have darts that won't lock open the valve and that will open and close as you're, you know, pumping on and pumping off. We have darts that will allow you to split the flow so you can actually split portions of the flow through the dart and portions of the flow through the valve itself. We have tools that allow you to actually run in the hole and self-fill and then activate floats with darts, which is really unique because sometimes if you're going to do like shallow hole testing where you're testing some of your MWD and LWD equipment at the surface, you want to be able to self-fill while you're running in the hole. This allows you to do that, which saves you time. So a lot of it's around saving time, high amount of reliability, especially the deeper down the the well bore you go, the much more critical, the much more expensive it gets to to you know to make sure that that operation goes correctly. So, you know, we've had a lot of success uh, with our with our tools. So, you know, we've been able to really help operators save a lot of money. We've got some really new unique technology that allows operators to let's say let's say for instance they're going to go drill an exploration well and they're really worried about let's say for instance hey I think we're going to get we might get stuck. If we get stuck, we need to have a contingency. And we've got a tool that is a hydraulic pipe recovery system that allows them to utilize the solid content in their drilling fluids to create a washout and a stress relief feature inside the drill string. And they are able to sever their drill string in a matter of hours versus, you know, a matter of days or, you know, having to use explosives and they can mitigate that HSE risk. They can mitigate additional time. And so, you know, when you're talking about offshore, right, the, the, the day rate for an offshore rig is, I mean, it eclipses the day rate of an onshore rig. So every minute is money. Every, every second is money. Every, every minute's valuable. So we're really able to help people, operators save that time. We work with a lot of service companies as well. So we work with with service companies, we partner with them in some parts of the world to, to, you know, sort of augment their offerings, especially in some parts of the world where operators require service companies to do these all-inclusive contracts. So, you know, they go out and they tell the service company, well, we want you to go source these tools for us, basically. So they're all-inclusive, if you will. And so we work with, with service companies as well in different parts of the world to be able to support, you know, those operations remotely. So, I mean, day to day, we're we're definitely deeply involved with the operators, whether it be via email, phone, face to face. We we actually go out to those regions on a very consistent basis and go meet with operators face to face, meet with our business partners. We have agents that we work with in some parts of the world, and so we'll partner with them and and sort of leverage their facilities to house and store equipment so that it can be ready. And on location, you know, quick, fast, in a hurry when it needs to be there and sort of planning out the logistics. We've got a really solid operations team that's really great at, you know, sending personnel to go service tools, you know, as needed so that we're not having to, you know, because operations are always moving around, especially in different parts of the world. You know, you may be drilling somewhere one year, two years, five years, and then you're moving to go drill somewhere else. So, you know, we try and stay really fluid so that we can so that we can be agile to follow our clients and their operations. But, you know, we're, we're, we're still relatively a young company at 17, you know, 17 years old. So, you know, as we continue to grow and mature, we'll, we'll most likely, just like we've done then starting in Aberdeen, is we'll most likely start to, you know, plant flags in other parts of the world as it becomes a requirement, if you will. So, you know, we're, we're really involved with the operators. I mean, we, we've been involved with, you know, over a hundred different operators around the globe. I mean, we've got, you know, thousands of deployments with our equipment. We've just had a lot of success and we've been really fortunate to, you know, have really good innovative products and technology and have a, have a great technical team behind us. We've got great product champions, 
great management team. I mean, everybody's just, you know, from the top down, they're always pushing the same message is that, you know, we want to be the most valued partner to our, to our clients. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's a company culture thing. And so I think, you know, culture is, is really big for me. And so if I didn't feel like the, the company had that kind of culture, I probably wouldn't have joined them, but it was something that, you know, especially having had previously worked with two other employees there. I knew that, you know, they were going in the right direction and, and, and being able to continue to to build the team that way and, you know, sort of see it develop. Even in the short time that I've been with the company, I mean, it's just developed tremendously. And, and so it's been really unique to watch and really excited to see, you know, where we go from here, because it's almost what I would call like a Goldilocks scenario, having worked for a big company like Oceanarian, then moving over to the private companies. So, you know, THL was a 30-year-old company, and then the company after THL was like a three-year-old company. And so now it's like 17, so it's sort of right in that middle, right? Goldilocks, not too not too firm, not too soft, just right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I sort of explain it that way, and, and, and everybody gets a laugh out of it. Yeah, no, I, I can understand that. that. That's a very, very clear analogy for, for what you're dealing with. Is is Churchill predominantly offshore focused or do these tools go with any kind of drilling and no matter the, the area? Yeah. So we've, we've actually had a lot of experience on land as well. Not predominantly as much only because we just have been very, very meticulous in, in the projects that we have gotten involved with, because we, like I said before, we, we do want to be viewed as the most valuable partner. So for us, if we feel like we probably wouldn't bring the same level of value to that operation, you know, we're very transparent when, when, when communicating that. But, you know, we have seen a lot of opportunity for us to grow, especially on the U.S. land market. But we've just been very cautious because we just don't want to get into a position, especially, you know, the way operations go on land. You could go meet with somebody, have your tools out on location that afternoon. You know, for us, we, we want to know as much as we can about the well. What are the challenges, problems? Because we don't want to just put tools in the string. We want to make sure that the tools that we put in the string are going to be utilized to leverage the maximum amount of value so that the customer is getting the most value, that we're getting the most value, that it becomes a long-term relationship and not just a sale. We don't want to just sell our rent tools, rather. We want to create relationships that are long-term, that are beneficial for that are, that are beneficial for both the customer and for the company. Do you find a lot of these operators are hesitant to share that much information with you when, when you're trying to get involved and trying to offer them suggestions on the right tool? Are they, are they hesitant to, to open their books like that? No, I think they, they really want to get the most value out of our tools as well. And so I think, I mean, most of the time they'll tell us, hey, this is tight hole. Don't share it with anybody. And, you know, we've got long-term relationships with a lot of major operators. So, you know, we're not an unknown, if you will. So it's it's not as if they're like, well, we don't know about these Churchill guys. You know, we've never dealt with them. They've heard of us before, whether if they were in another country or in another operator. So we're really good about, you know, having such a good reputation that companies are, are very willing to share information with us. And they, they even go as far as asking their service providers to share additional information with us if they can, so that we can make sure that we maximize the amount of value that we're bringing to the table. Because the one thing that they want to get out of the tool is they don't want to just put it in the tool and, and not use it. They want to leverage that technology. They want to leverage the tool, especially if it comes down to a critical operation. So, you know, they're not really hesitant. There's times where they are not able to share information because they don't have access to it or they don't have it or they don't know. And and that that's when, you know, that can be sort of a hurdle, if you will. But more times than not, we don't really run into the problem of them not wanting to share information. Yeah, I, I just always wondered how that works. You know, you hear a lot of these companies are super secret of what their secret sauce is, right? And exactly how that works. But that makes sense. They want to, you know, they open the doors, let you... Because I'm sure you're providing a lot of knowledge to them too, right? There's got to be a lot of education provided from from you and from your side of the deal on everything you could do, everything that might be a possibility. So, do you do that education, or how does that how does that 
present from Churchill? So we've got we've got technical account managers and a product champion on our team that does a re- they do a really great job of providing that technical aspect, that technical education to the customer. Because you're right, a lot of the the customers that we work with they're not necessarily they're not necessarily subject matter experts in what we do. They rely on us heavily. They rely on their other service providers heavily to educate them and guide them and give them the best information or the best guidance possible. So we do a really good job of that. You know, having a, a product champion on staff definitely helps us with that because that person is dedicated to making sure that, you know, the customers understand the, the technical applications completely. The, the technical services managers are also there to supplement that, but also make sure that they are reviewing, you know, technical information and then sharing any any feedback that they have with the customers and they collaborate together, you know, the product champions and the technical account managers to also educate the customers, whether that is by delivering a, a technical lunch and learn presentation, reviewing their their drilling scopes of work or their, excuse me, their their drilling SOPs and things of that nature, or looking at their bottom hole assemblies and saying, okay, you should place the tool here and making sure that, okay, these are the restrictions. These are some some things that we see. As long as we can pass through this portion of the drill string, we should be good to go. And, and making sure that they understand all the risks that are involved, but then also, you know, hey, after the end of the day, we're sanitized, we're, we're sanity checking each other and making sure that, hey, this is all going to be correct. And so one of the things that's really unique is that you know, because even our operations manager and the product champion and the technical account managers all came from a third party quality assurance, quality control company, they are extra cautious in making sure that any tool that we put out is going to meet standards, that it's going to meet criteria, it's going to meet our minimum requirements before it leaves the shop and that it's been tested, drifted, all of those things so that the customer knows, hey, you're going to get a good piece of equipment. You know, We're not just going to just churn pieces of equipment in and out the shop just to make revenue. There's something we see that we find is, is, is a red flag for us. We're going to take care of it. We're going to QC that. And, and a lot of operators are really starting to put the onus back on service companies for, you know, quality management systems and things of that nature. And we're really good at that. So, you know, we provide the customers with a very high level of technical technical feedback and, and expertise. Yeah, and that kind of goes back to what we talked about near the beginning, right? This, you never know who you're going to run back into tomorrow in this industry, right? So if you, if you came up short on something, if you guys didn't do that quality work, if you didn't do those quality inspections, if, if you put something out there that, it wasn't top notch. I mean, that's going to get around, right? So you, you really have to yeah, stick I mean, to your word and come through. We we go as far as even internally. I mean, we're 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 double and triple checking things internally and making sure that hey, is this right? And we're having other sets of eyes look at data and say, hey, you know, please make sure that you know what we're saying is accurate and correct because we want to make sure that we're that we're gonna we're gonna put this tool in the string that it's gonna do what it's intended to do. And you know, there's, I mean. The devil's in the details. And, you know, if I look at something and I'm tired or I've been looking at all these things all day and you come behind me and you look at it and you say, oh, well, what about this? I may have missed it. And so we definitely try and make sure that we give ourselves every opportunity to catch those things before it gets to the client. And, you know, just making sure that they're getting the highest level of service possible. And, and that's really important to us because, you know, I'm sure you know this, everybody's reputation is on the line. We don't I mean, look, I might work for Churchill today. I may work for somebody else tomorrow, but my reputation is always going to be what it's going to be. And I don't want to tarnish that no matter what. And I think most people that I've I've come in contact with in our industry, I think they they sort of live and die by the same ethos is that, you know, everybody's got a reputation that they want to maintain. And because this industry is, I think it's very well known for for eyeballing people that are that are of low standards, mm-hmm, yeah, you know, I mean, you just don't want to be known as that person that just doesn't care or is, is lackadaisical or, you know, is you just don't want to be known that way. And 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 we're very we're very meticulous. We're, we're sort of hard on each other sometimes, but that's because we're always trying to make each other better. And you know, like I was alluding to before, you know, like professional athletes. You know, I come to play on the best team possible. I come to win, and if if my team members aren't bringing it, you know, I'll let them know. You know, we'll we'll, we'll have very unique discussions. Like, hey, man, you know, pick it up. 
Yeah, radical candor. Yeah, you got to be upfront and honest with your feedback for sure. Yeah, but you know, we don't do it in a way obviously to to get under each other's skin, but you know, we definitely just want to keep each other motivated as best as possible. And, and obviously, you know, understand what our strengths and our weaknesses are and how we can augment those with other people's strengths and just being very honest like, hey, there's something I don't know, I need to learn this. Can I learn this? Or is this something I should rely on somebody else to tell me? You know, it's just being honest with yourself. No, great points, great insights. I agree completely there. With all your time, with all your experience, I mean, it sounds like you guys are running a a top-notch operation over over there at Churchill. Do you face any myths or, or misunderstandings about the industry? I mean, we'll leave it real broad. Any Anything that you wish people knew earlier on or had more clarity on about oil and gas or offshore? You know, I guess not too often. I, I just don't always have the opportunity to, to, I guess, living in Houston, I mean, a lot of people are connected to the industry some way, somehow. I don't always have a, an opportunity to to spend time with people outside of the industry, if you will. But I guess, you know, my nephew the other day, I mean, he's he's in his 20s and he was asking me a question. He was saying, you know, well, aren't, isn't there just like a finite amount of it? And I was explaining to him, I said, you have to realize how much, you know, how much oil is in the world. It, we are in a, as Mark would put it, a hydrocarbon abundant environment. For yeah. <laughs> Right. And I mean, we, there's just so much oil. I mean, there's always these, these large fines, you know, I mean, Exxon hit those huge fines in, in, you know, Guyana and, you know, Talos hit a huge fine in, in Mexico. I believe it was Apache hit, hit a huge fine in the Permian. I mean, the Permian's got something recorded like a hundred years of oil in the Permian. Right. And that's just one region. And, and there's so many regions, you know, in the world. I mean, there's just so much oil out there so much oil and gas out there that, it, I mean, it's, there's a lot of it, but, you know, we, we still do need to be mindful of how much is out there. And, and I think we're making good use of it, in my opinion, especially by sort of augmenting the use of it by, you know, looking at alternatives and, and, you know, making different things because we're not just making gasoline, right? We're not just making motor oil, we're making so many different things. We're making all of these, you know, plastics, all these things that are coming out of, you know, the the yield of that barrel of oil. It's not just, you know, it's not just to run your car or to, you know, fuel your truck. It's it's so much more than that. There's, I mean, just so many things that we would lose if we lost oil. I agree completely, right? That's something I hope that we can help get some more light out there about and get some more information out there, either through this podcast or through all the other podcasts that are put out through the OGGN and, and even the other networks. I mean, anybody that's trying to shine some light on the positive aspects of the industry, I'm all for it. And and I agree as well, using the resources that we have and using those to build and create the energy sources of the future, that's great. I mean, our society wouldn't be where it is today had we not discovered the use of oil and gas. And, um, you know, as long as we continue to be ever better stewards of that, I think, I think we're doing the right thing. Yeah. And if I would say anything about, you know, oil and gas, I would say if anybody out there that ever gets an opportunity to, to be a part of the offshore community, definitely do it because I would say that, you know, I've been part of both the onshore and the offshore community and, and I respect both equally, but if you've only been on one, I definitely think you're missing out if you don't try the other, at least. You know, I would equate it to, you know, saying, look, I only I only drink Pepsi or I only drink Coke. I think you can like both, but you got to try them both to know. You know, don't pigeonhole yourself. I think if if you can operate in one, you can operate in either. There's going to be some things that are more challenging than others in different parts of it. I mean, there's things about the onshore life that, man, I, I just it's tough. And there's things about the offshore life that are really, really tough, but the technical challenges that you come across on both sides, getting that cross training and, and that understanding of both, I think makes you so much of a valuable asset to the resource or to the, to the industry. And if you look at yourself as how can I be the, you know, the best asset to the industry possible, I think cross training and, and learning both parts of it and learning different parts of it as well. Not, not just, you know, and some people do need to become sub- subject matter experts in one or two things, 
but I like to diversify my knowledge and, and learn a lot about different things. But overall, it, it's one industry. And, and so I, I feel like it's it's done it's done right by me. And if I had any advice to give it to anybody that, you know, definitely try and learn as much as you can about both segments, not just one segment. Very good advice. Very good points. Um, I think anybody that listens to this episode can can hear very clearly that you have a great appreciation for the industry and for the work that we do. You know your stuff. You've you've been around the block a time or two. So greatly appreciate your time and, and all the insight you've given us. Is there anything else that you just want the audience to know about you or Churchill Drilling Tools or you know, even the industry. Not that I could think of off the top of my head. You know, I think, you know, if you're if you're new to the industry, you know, you should take a deep dive into there's so many new podcasts that are coming out. And it's something that I found very valuable. You know, not just oil and gas this week, not just onshore, not just offshore, but you know, try and listen to as many of them as you can. You know, take time to to read API standards, take time to attend events, network, you know, that's probably the most important thing is just get out there meet other people, network with them, you know, figure out how you can give back to your network because your network is your net worth. And I think a lot of people in this industry will agree to that, that, you know, it's, there's so many times where you've probably gotten a job opportunity. Anybody listening to this podcast probably got a job opportunity or or something like that by referral, somebody they knew, you know, take time to develop your relationships. At the end of the day, we're just human beings, you know, don't forget that we're not, you know, we're not employee number X, Y, or Z. We're we're still human beings. Connect with connect with your with your coworkers. You know, make sure that you build those relationships because at the end of the day, you know, there's going to be times where you might be unmotivated or something bad happens to you, and you'll be surprised. You know, you might get a call out of the blue. Somebody that used to work with two, three, four, five, ten years ago says, "Hey, man, I was just thinking about you. Just wanted to make sure you're doing okay." And you're surprised, and it happens to me all the time you know, people that I work with, you know, different companies or on different projects or whatever, you know, they'll call me up out of the blue. Hey, Jose, I was just, I was doing this and I was thinking about you, man, and just make sure you're doing okay. And and vice versa. You know, I've got a a book of contacts that, you know, I've probably forgotten more of those contacts than I remember, but it's just unique that, you know, this industry, you can create some really good camaraderie, take the time to, to learn your business, take the time to learn your craft, Become a master of the trade. It's just so important that we do that because what we do is still very risky. People still can and do lose their lives doing it. So don't take it lightly. It's really important that we don't forget that. But that that would be the only thing if if you're new or even if you're in the industry and you've been around for a while. And if you're, you know, if you're ever if you're ever feeling down or unmotivated, you know, just pick up the phone and call somebody. Don't feel like you have to leave leave the business because you had one bad experience. I agree completely. So Jose, thank you very much for your time. To the audience, thank you for listening. I hope you guys are taking notes. I think there's been some gold dropped through this last interview and through this discussion. I've really enjoyed it myself. I hope you did as well. For sure. Yeah. If you enjoy the show and you want to support us further, we'd greatly appreciate a review on iTunes or anywhere that you stream your podcast. If you can share on social media. All those things come back to support the show, help us reach a greater audience, and spread the good word of the industry. If the other thing, if you leave a review, probably read those on a future show. So again, thank you, Jose. Thank you for coming out. I greatly appreciate it. And everybody listening, here are the events on deck. Hey, everyone. Alex here with the events on deck for November. First of all, we had our best turnout ever for our latest happy hour in Houston with our panel discussion. So thanks to everyone who attended, and we hope to keep offering you guys value in the future. Be sure to listen here for any future happy hours. The events on deck for November include OGGN's second Denver happy hour on November 6th from 4 to 6 p.m. The cost of attendance is $20, a portion of which goes to local charities Safe House Denver and Oilfield Helping Hands. On November 12th at Minute Maid Stadium, IBM's Oil Field of Dreams, Data, Digitization, and Disruption. This event is free for all OGGN subscribers. OGGN's Mark LaCour will be doing a live podcast with ExxonMobil and his 2020 oil and gas predictions. On November 12th through 14th is Procurement Week in Sydney, Australia. Our travel partner, BCD Travel, will be sponsoring day two of Procurement Week in Sydney. Day two has content focused on the construction, mining, and energy sectors. 
as well as an indirect procurement leaders forum, which encompasses travel. Industry leaders will be discussing value-driven procurement approaches, evolving technologies, and the changing landscape. And drinks are on BCD at the end of the day. The Houston chapter API Energy Petroleum Club will be meeting on November 12th in Houston. Speaker Shane McElroy will be talking about the sustainability of electric fracturing. We have another free event on deck this month for our subscribers. The Top Coder Innovation Summit will be taking place on November 14th in Houston, Texas. This event is the premier innovation event for industry leaders. You'll have the opportunity to attend panels on innovation and emerging technologies and meet with the YPRO and Topcoder executive teams. Lastly, the Algeria Oil and Gas Summit is happening on November 19th through 21st this year. Alnaft will be sharing onshore and offshore updates for Africa's leading gas producer and opportunities for independent oil and gas companies. And don't forget, if you guys would like to receive these events each month via email, click Get Mark's Monthly Events email link in the show notes of any OGGN podcast. Hope you guys have a great month. Tune in next week for another episode of the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasoffshore.com.